You're listening to TIP. In this episode, I talk with Josh McCallan all about investing in resorts as a real estate investing strategy. We talk about why he thinks his model of investing and raising capital is perfect for today's time, how to apply a Warren Buffett model to purchasing and repositioning distressed assets, how hotels and resorts compete against Airbnb properties, how the hospitality industry fared during COVID, and the lessons Josh learned from it, and a bunch more. Josh McCallan is a thought leader, brand strategist, and a resort revivalist. Over the past 20 years, he has generated over $100 million in revenue in the industry, as well as in hospitality and weddings. What started as constructing luxury beach houses for celebrities evolved into leading his first large-scale resort development company to international notoriety, gaining both national recognition as a top 25 hotel out of 50,000 American hotels and recognition from the Wall Street Journal, then joining Melanie, his wife of 23 years, in a partnership to form Accountable Equity and Viva May Hospitality. Josh is the CEO of Viva May Hospitality, which is a vertically integrated management company and value-add land developer that oversees all of Accountable Equity's assets. And he is also the co-host of two podcasts. One is Capital Hacking and the other is Wealth Building with Friends. What Josh is doing might not be completely replicable for a new investor or someone who has done just a few deals. I don't think I'd be able to do what Josh is doing either. But Josh's story and strategy is fascinating nonetheless. So I hope you guys enjoy learning about it like I did. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Josh McAllen. Josh, welcome to the show. Such an honor and pleasure to be here, Robert. You guys do a phenomenal job and your audience is probably some of the best in the world. So I'm glad to be able to talk to them. I really appreciate the kind words. We've actually known each other for a bit now. We've talked offline quite a few times and I've joined you on your podcast. But for those who don't know you yet, tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Thanks for asking. By the way, you are a great guest as well on the Capital Hacking Show. So thank you for mentioning that. Episode 140, in case you're looking for it. My background does not begin in podcasting. It began in a very, it's almost like the metaphorical beginning. My wife and I get married 25 years ago and we buy a duplex and we house hack in the 90s before they called it that. But then years later, my story picks up after spending four years in Europe and helping. I was part of an administration for a hotel in the Alps. I mean, talk about beautiful, but my job primarily was to work with the people that are in the building. So I didn't necessarily have all the responsibility over there, but boy, did I love it. Four years, learned some German, lived in uh, nature, took, you know, really experienced village life like it was in the movie Sound of Music. I mean, really, Maria von Trapp could have come around the corner and you would have thought we were in the movie. It was so beautiful. But from that point, I got back to the US in 0506, which was the boom days and was so grateful after some spit and grit to find my way into land development, which was a big pivot. I got there by doing business plans and pitching them on how to sell real estate better for new construction, how to kind of motivate people to be lifelong buyers. All this kind of strategy that I'd been writing while I was in Europe as kind of a thinker, a thought leader thinker, but that worked. I got in front of the right developers 
who were really crushing it and so busy back in those days, if you can remember how the boom was, that I ended up just kind of fitting right into this small private family office who was just doing the most beautiful stuff in the world, building $5 million flips. And they were just out of staff. And so this pivot happened where I was able to go from more of the theory of life into literally project managing, which in those days is a lot more like general contracting because there were no general contractors showing up. And here we are, $5 million project working for this family office as one of their delegates. I just stayed at the properties and directed everything from finished carpenters to structural engineers to even the sales team on how to present. So really got baptized by fire into land development and loved it. Did about $50 million worth of houses for famous people. And from that, after the crash, there was this big change that was called the 08 crash or recession. And there was a period of time there where i very blessed to be part of a book called Don't Quit. Well, that was because I bought a business in 09 and 10 and lost it. And that's a real positive experience for us. It wasn't at the time. We bought a franchise because I thought, well, you know, I'm a Michael Gerber guy, e-myth, right? Not only did I love land development, but I was very focused on creating a franchise prototype for our land development company, which of course was in the middle of doing the franchise prototype. We were going to do these mega beach flips up and down the affluent coast for New Yorkers and whatever. And of course that ended, right? With the crash, we stopped all projects. So when I left that, I thought, well, what's the best way to Michael Gerber your life is to buy a franchise that's in the formation, get to know the founders, get cash flow out of it, and really become a future franchisor. And not because I care so much about being a franchisor, but because I love the power that process can create in business. We say process equals peace for our teams. Anyway, so I bought a franchise. I said, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. My wife and I bought a franchise and lost it. And that was chronicled in this little book we were part of called Don't Quit. It's on Amazon. And it tells the story of putting everything we had into a franchise that does restaurant kitchen cleaning. I know, nothing sexy about it. As you and I agree, there's a lot of money to be made in the non-sexy startups and businesses. This one I thought would make it through the recession because it was regulated by the fire department. And I thought, well, if you want to have a restaurant open, even if it's the recession, you still have to have your legal certification. So we lost it because of a failure to ramp up my sales process at first. And by the time we learned how to sell value-based selling, true transparency and numbers, selling at a premium, that strategy was developed by the fire of the forging iron. And at first I thought I would sell on price and that did not work in that industry. I was trying to break into restaurateurs that I'm saying, look, I'll cut $200 off your process. Use us and get to know us and we'll, we'll be your uh, cleaning, hood cleaning business forever. And boy, was that a mistake. Nobody would give me the time of day. Then I doubled the price, sold on quality and got mega contracts. Well, in the middle there, I had already depleted everything we had. And so by the time we built a couple hundred thousand dollar revenue business, which is not much, but is a lot from zero, the franchisor gave me an ultimatum, either pay us your back due franchise fees or we'll take the keys in your business. And I had to opt for the keys because we were out of cash at the time. What a killer, painful experience. And that helped us. We created a principle from that point on that sales are sacred. And I think that's the real story of why we are doing really well in what we do today. Fast forward, we rejoined that family office, phenomenal group of people. And now we're saving a resort that they had bought. And it was 2012. 
They're like, what'd you do with this flea bag hotel we bought to tear down? I said, well, looks like the numbers are going to not make sense to tear it down and build houses. Let's keep it a hotel on the beach. Let's go for it. Let's do the Uncle Gerber franchise prototype and fix it up and buy. And you and I are up here in the Northeast right now. And you know, from Cape Cod down to the Carolinas, there's just dumpy, dumpy properties sitting on grade A sand. And we said, what if we could slowly but surely buy all those mom and pop beachfronts, turn them into our brand, spend a good bit of money positioning them for the 21st century quality, really beautiful. And we would have a hell of a business, we thought. Turns out we were wrong. (laughs) We thought it was about the building. And uh, I'll just tease it here and we can come back to it later. But in the second and third year after failed operating company, failed operating companies, meaning hiring management companies, struggled so much to deliver luxury seasonally. We created an optimized management company that was really focused on service. So at first we were all focused on land development and beautiful design and creating the best amenities. And then that only got us so far. Imagine going to a hotel that's beautiful, but you weren't taken care of. You can't really appreciate that hotel, even though it's pretty. That changed our life. Three years later, after we learned how to manage hotels, we became the seventh ranked hotel in America out of 55,000. And there's a whole story in those three years that we'll do on a later segment. But that changed our life. We realized our calling was service. And we realized how spiritual and good for the soul service can be. And from that, we became speaker on the topic of how to serve from the heart. And from that level of service, we built a phenomenal new management company that is just legendary called Viva May Hospitality, led by some of the best pros in the business, led by our inspiration for soul-based service. And that's how we do so well with resorts. It wasn't though until I learned about syndicated capital and this concept of capital syndication where regular good families can own trophy resorts and have all the mega upside of commercial real estate. It wasn't until about four years ago that I realized you didn't have to be a $100 million family office to buy resorts. You could be a family of accredited status, they say, join groups like Accountable Equity, and we can own it together. And you can have access to probably one of the most lucrative real estate categories. It's owned by all the billionaires. It's owned by all the hundred millionaires. They all own some kind of amenity-rich resort experience. These things are very strong cash flow businesses, but they're not accessible until now. You really couldn't grab a portion, a direct partnership portion of these until we built our companies because they're not usually available to the open public to own this type of real estate and all the benefits passively. Today, we are proud to say we have like 220 families that are invested with us from Europe. I mean, they found us on the internet. They found us doing shows like yours, great shows. And we share this passion for what we do and we share how we treat our people and how we treat our guests. And boom, people are like, I know that works. So I have investors from Switzerland all over, but mostly America. And then we have Canadians and of course, some people out in Hawaii, which is still America, but it covers like half the world, right? So super honored and humbled. And we do this in a very unique way. That's our life story. I hope I didn't overdo it. It's interesting that you got into the cleaning restaurants business because I actually know some people that do that today. And I can definitely see how it's one of those unsexy businesses, but could be enticing because I know they do relatively well. And like you said, it seems on the surface to be potentially recession-proof or at least you know a service that's still needed during 
times of crisis, I guess you could say. Maybe not during COVID because restaurants are shut down, but in general, right? It's something that restaurants need. You also mentioned Michael Gerber and the E-Myth. And I really like the E-Myth as a book. So I want to dive into that for a second. For the audience who isn't familiar with Michael Gerber and E-Myth, tell us a little bit about who Michael Gerber is, what the E-Myth is, what the story is behind it. Give us a little walkthrough about that and how it's impacted you. Well, I will absolutely do that. For you who are listening, this is like your Blinkist overview of the E-Myth book. But also, it's an invitation to Michael Gerber to be on our podcast, Capital Hacking. Michael, if you're listening to the show, please, we'd love to talk to you. So Michael Gerber, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, really pioneered the idea that today you and I hear all the time, and that is an operating system for businesses. You and I probably know the people that have created things like EOS, operating system, all these systematic business processes. Well, Michael, what he did is he took what the big businesses of McDonald's and any big company that knows how to scale, and he dissected it down so that you and I can implement it at the first business we ever create. And he calls that process the franchise prototype. To summarize, here's how I take it. He's saying an entrepreneurial myth, which is what e-myth means, his name of the book, is when you think you're the best baker, and actually this is his paradigm of his whole story, a baker, a person who was the best cupcake and the pies and the best cakes, the best baker in her city opens a bakery. And what he says is that's called an entrepreneurial seizure where you're the best at something and you say, now I'm going to make a business. And you sign a lease and buy equipment and boom, you're in business. And for a while it works because you can work 115 hours a week and you can make a living until you can't. And then you run out of adrenaline and you start hiring anybody that walks in off the street and you have no system for training them. You have no system for selling better. And you have no system for teaching your recipes to 10 people to start X scaling, and you have this breakdown. And so the book starts with him explaining to that person, here's what might have, you might have missed. Being an expert and being an operator are two different skills. So an expert in the field and an operator of the business are two different fields. What if you could take a deep breath and realize that you have to transmute your skill for the quality of baking into a business that pays for wages, pays for consistency, pays for service. And that is called the franchise prototype. And he does a masterful storytelling job. And there you go. That's my Blinkist interview. How has it impacted you and what you're doing today and throughout your business life? Yeah. Thanks for asking it that way. Boy, you are a great interviewer, Robert. I need to learn from you. You know what? The system, I never see starting a company without seeing a hundred units. So that is that is how we work. And we kind of stylized all of the e-myth into our show called Capital Hacking, where we do explain a lot of this, but we do more there. We're not here to do a, a mom and pop business. And we have my wife involved. So we have a joke at our company. We have about 220 employees now, teammates. And we always say, this is not a mom and pop. If you were hired to be the expert of chef and culinary, you're the expert of chef and culinary. If you were hired to be the best at entertainment and events, you're the best but I do say there is a mama and a papa because Melanie and I are the, let's say, the guardians of the core soul of what we're trying to achieve in hospitality and real estate and a very large investor network. We guard the soul and the mission and the purpose, and we are here and we have a lot of driving force. We're tenacious, but we are not a mom and pop. We are building a process-based, scalable business. And so that's how it changed us. We don't really have any interest in buying something to lifestyle. We're here to build something of value for the world. 
Michael told me that. You mentioned that what you're building historically hasn't been accessible for most people. And I would say that being an accredited investor still makes it not super accessible for everybody, you know, for a lot of people. So I'm wondering, is there a model? Maybe it's with you, maybe it's through accountable equity, maybe it's through what you're doing, maybe it's through somebody else. But is there a possibility you see in the resort and hospitality industry for non-accredited investors to get involved? Maybe it's through equity crowdfunding. You're seeing a lot of platforms like Fundrise and things like that offer access to these commercial properties and platforms and portfolios through crowdfunding. Do you see that potentially being an access point for non-accredited investors to get into resorts and hospitality? Yeah. You've opened up the door to our listeners to the other focus that we as a company have to think like. And that's why we have an expert in each area. We have an expert in construction, an expert in hotel management. And then we lead the team of experts at the capital group. So that's a call to accountable equity. And one of our efforts this year is to explore crowdfunding components to what we do, which would be available to non-accredited. So it's okay if you're not accredited at this time, feel free to get on our list so we know if there's a real interest in that. Because yes, we've actually about six months ago started talking to one crowdsourcing group, crowdfunding group, and they're just, listen, there's a good bit of expense to add these levels of sophistication to your operating agreements and then to your compliance. So we think it is the future, actually. You know why? Because our resorts attract hundreds and hundreds of thousands of guests a year, and they fall in love with what we're doing. And why wouldn't they want to own a piece? And maybe they're not all accredited. So we think we've created a, what I call the virtuous cycle. You know, Guests become investors eventually, or you start as investors and you bring guests. It's this kind of magic that we've kind of created in the resort world, because unlike everything else you and I invest in commercially, it's hard to actually take a secondary benefit of personal enjoyment, right? It's hard to personally enjoy self-storage as an investor. It's hard to personally enjoy multifamily as an investor, but it's extremely easy to enjoy a resort that you own with a glass of wine and your friends or a golf round or whatever we have for you. So I do think the future is crowdfunding for us, but today it's still limited to accredited. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, 
but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. This is going to be a big question. So feel free to break it down into different parts if you need to. But how do you apply a Warren Buffett model to purchasing and repositioning distressed resort and luxury properties? Yes, this is where I fell in love with you and the whole Real Investor Podcast Network was because of your Warren Buffett principles. We had a whole education on Warren Buffett and resort investing. In the corona, where we have scaled tremendously through corona, was the ultimate Warren Buffett moment in what we do. Everybody, if we could have all joined forces faster, could have probably taken down several more resorts because it was the most maligned pop culture maligned asset in all of the world, right? Was hospitality during the corona. And there was good reason. The government shut most of our businesses down for a period of time. But that almost, what I tried to explain when we did, we did raise about $10 million from investors during corona because they saw what we were saying. Warren Buffett says, buy what is intrinsically valuable, a value invest, and that really has staying power with cash flow. I mean, I'm not paraphrasing. So what was the best thing to buy? Resorts when they were on sale that have been around. Most of our resorts have been around decades and decades. There's some that we've owned that are 150 years old. Another we own is 200 years old. And guess what? They've made it through the, all the cycles. So that means they're probably in the right physical geography for enjoyment. They're probably in the right physical geography for travelers. Oh, and guess what? they probably are in a drive-to destination. And if Warren was on the phone with us now, he would echo that the Federal Reserve, Daniela, I'll have to look up her name, was just on a big story about her talking about how hospitality was clearly bifurcated during the corona. There was the corporate travel, which is Marriott Hilton. It's where all the conferences are. They are maligned for the next three years and are underperforming like at a drastic level. And then there's drive-to lifestyle resort experiences, which are on the highest growth pattern they've ever been in in history. So why are they both called hospitality? They both called hospitality. They're both maligned in the media. But we knew, because we were in it, that we were surging through Corona. 
And we knew that we were in a value buy. And good news is we're still in a value buy, probably for a while. And then on top of that, before the pandemic, we were buying value because we were buying, and it's called business plan arbitrage is what I call it. We're buying from a family that bought their little resort or misplaced resort. Like maybe it doesn't have enough rooms or maybe it has more golf course than hotel rooms, which one of our resorts does. And we knew it was not a perfect fit for private equity, BlackRock and all that stuff. So since it wasn't a perfect fit for them, it allowed this void of buyers. Then what we did is we said, how are they running it today? And they're making some money or breaking even. Well, that's because they're only using four of the eight levers of wealth building. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. They might've been using two, rooms and breakfast, (laughs) rooms and a bar. We're saying, what about weddings? What about corporate? What about tourism on a whole nother scale because of festivals that are ticketed and attract TV media and get on the morning shows and ice rinks that for Winterfest. What if you add layers of cash flow and exponentially just add layers? And now what you're doing is you're arbitraging from a really underperforming asset to a massively performing asset. So that's what is the value buy of our company. We're buying limited business plan resorts and scaling with our expertise in very lucrative additions to the revenue. And you know, from the world of commercial real estate, all we have to do is get that profit up, that NOI. And we do that by top line growth and then great management. But we do focus on top line growth, meaning sell more, go faster, which is what I learned 12 years ago from losing a company is sell, sell now, sell forever, sell because you love them. Don't stop selling. We just radically change the value of these properties. Within five years, we pay all the investors back and they stay our partners forever. It's magical. You raised a good point about the net operating income. And for those who don't know, commercial properties, so when you get over five units, anything higher than that, your properties are no longer really valued on comps or similar properties in the area. Now they're based on what does that property generate and what's called net operating income. And so, Josh, I'm curious, if you were to go sell a property like this and you look at net operating income, the way I view it is kind of you have the real estate piece and then you really have a hospitality business. And how does that play into the value of the real estate? Because I almost see them as two separate things. So how does that play into the value of the real estate itself? Well, what you're describing is, since you guys have, as a network, have always been phenomenal at public markets as well, take a look at Marriott and their evolution over the last 34, 40 years. They transitioned from owning their buildings and running them to just running them, no longer owning them. What they did is they took all their equity in resort ownership and put it in a REIT or sold it out to high net worth people. And they did that because you're right, they are in the operating business. Their brand is all about operations. So what we did is for the last eight, nine years, even before I built the companies we have today, this is iteration two, meaning now we've capitalized the ultimate business model in our opinion, because it took us eight years to figure it out. We really do have three different managements. We have capital real estate ownership with asset management called accountable equity. And then we have Viva May Hospitality, which runs resorts, but does not own the resort. It's a hired gun, just like Marriott. So you could choose to hire Marriott or you could choose to hire Viva May. Now we are not out for hire. We only work vertically integrated way, which Warren would also say is one of the most magic ways to change the control and wealth of these assets is to make sure the vested interest in the operation. So we do. So when you're a real estate investor with us, you're truly only buying the real estate. 
you don't have the real challenge of management. Obviously, we bring that with an expertise group, and we've done it now four or five properties in our team's leadership. So my point is, we do bifurcate, just like Marriott does. And Viva May runs these properties, but you and I can own these properties. And as an owner, you do need to do diligence. Just like, uh, you probably don't know this, but maybe you do. You and I and the group of listeners could go buy a Marriott. We could go buy a Marriott right this minute and be the real estate owners of the Marriott. We would have no say over the operations of the building. It would have to be done by Marriott. And Marriott would take their 10 to 12% management fees plus other fees embedded, and they would run it. And they would do what they do, which is corporate meetings and corporate travel. And depending on the economy, they would do great. Maybe in 7, 8, 9% yield to you and I. We're happy enough with that. Let's say we own a Marriott. Whereas what we're buying, let's use an example. We're buying a $5 million property, the first one we bought, which was a steal. It'll probably appraise for $30 million in its third year. And the owners are going to pick up that benefit. Now, we spent money on it to turn it around, but they now own a much more valuable piece of real estate. And over here, the company that runs it has continued to improve their processes. You don't have to actually kind of get involved, just like you don't have to get involved with Marriott. So there really are two businesses. But what we're doing is Marriott, then Hilton moved to this model. And I believe pretty much every major brand you know, IHG, is done this way now. And they really create a bifurcation between real estate ownership and management. And we do the same. However, we're vertically integrated, so you have a lot more upside. So let's take that Marriott example. How does that property get valued? If that owner wanted to sell it, does it get valued based on the net operating income that Marriott is able to produce for that property? Yes, but it's a three-part appraisal in our world. It's a cost. So what would it cost to build that square footage again? They create a three-part comps or three-part appraisal. You're asking a tough question, but I'm glad the listeners are going to get it, this deep dive. The second is a comps assessment. How many Marriott sold in the area and what did they sell for? But that one gets weighted low, kind of like you said at the beginning. And then the ultimate valuation is based on the NOI, which is called a capitalization rate evaluation. And that's the most important one to the bankers. So yes, the piece of real estate is looked at all three ways. So there is a dollar value for how much real estate and building you own. Absolutely. There is a value on what's going on in the market. Are they selling well? Or are they not selling well? And then ultimately, it gets trumped by what are they producing for the renter, rental, the owner. And in the way, they kind of evaluate as rent, even though it's a hospitality. They don't necessarily call it that, but it's NOI. And you're right. So really, the NOI, which is the capitalization model, is truly the most important thing. And so we focus on that because we can control that. You know, you and I may or may not be able to control the square footage we bought, but we can control the revenue we push through that square footage. How do resorts, hotels, anybody really in the hospitality industry compete against Airbnb in today's world? Is Airbnb a major factor for your business model? Yeah, I wrote a book and we're going to give it to you guys. The seven reasons resort investing is thriving after COVID is part of them is Airbnb. I wrote a whole section on Airbnb, and our thesis is it's almost like they're... I remember Airbnb got going. I heard of it early on, and I thought, wow, you're sleeping on somebody's bed or somebody's room. And then, then I learned it was metamorphosizing into the whole apartment you could rent. And I thought, oh, this must be an economy play. Like I'm a kid, I'm young, I'm traveling the world, and I don't want to spend $400 a night in Manhattan. I might spend 150 for a bet. I don't know. Whatever I thought it was, I thought it was a value for the consumer. 
I don't think it's that anymore. I mean, if you and I thought of Airbnb today, would you think it's still that, which is still there, or do you think it's an experience play? Both. I think it's both. I think it depends. And I think that's part of the dynamic of that model, why it's so powerful, because you can work for those college students who don't have a lot of money that want to travel and just take a bed instead of a hostel. But you can also have these super high-end experiences. So it's weird. You can kind of cater to both. So think about what we are in the business. We are the original Airbnb. So everything we buy is experience-based, and it is the alternative to the big box Marriott. So what we're really saying is two things about Airbnb. One, this is new to me this year, we can actually join Airbnb with our unique assets. A lot of our stuff comes with cottage buildings and cute little stuff that is all very Airbnb-esque or penthouse suites that overlook the water, all these kinds of cool, unique experiences. We can actually now, and we will in the next few months, start using Airbnb as one of our third-party platforms. So that's interesting that I did not know that until this year. But I've always been pro Airbnb because of what it's doing. It's almost driving attention to groups like us. We are, you could say we're small hotels, big resorts, or you could say we're the world's biggest Airbnb assets. And that's the way we kind of look at it. Everything we want to do on our property is bougie and unique and experience-based. We want you inside the gardens in a botanical experience. We want you on overlooking your vineyard. All the things you might get from buying or renting a house on Airbnb. And we have houses now, and we're starting to investigate an Airstream community of clamping. We'd like to have that. All brand new Airstreams, really cool. Oh, and then it gets even better. We're sold out our properties because of wedding contracts. Our rooms are sold out for two years, every single weekend. It's very hard to get in here unless there's some wiggle way I can get you in there. But otherwise, you can't even book a room with us for years. So we have a problem. So I've been out buying neighborhoods around our properties and using them as Airbnb feeders into our own resorts. So Airbnb to us, we just opened our horizon, our, you know, the, what do they call that aperture on your camera? I remember years ago, people were like, is it a threat to hotels? Perhaps it is to Marriott, but to us, it's a huge win, huge, because we're now having the access point through Airbnb into our beautiful resorts. Our resorts are speaking to the same yearning of your soul for something unique and experiential. We're just doing it with professional service. And by the way, Airbnb is moving a lot towards hospitality, right? A lot more amenities and things like that. Well, we're rich with amenities. So what we're doing is kind of creating this new world order of how Airbnb and unique experiential drive-to resorts come together. And I think we're going to be the leader in that whole space. You mentioned before that you guys have actually thrived during COVID. And that was not actually what I expected you to say coming into this conversation. But I'm curious to learn what you learned from COVID. And it sounds like you didn't necessarily have a struggle that taught you things, but I'm sure that there was still things about this opportunity that you learned. So what was it that you took away from it? One is drive to helped us a lot, right? Airplanes were a mess. Still frustrating if you take an airplane even today to a resort area. They're very serious about masks on airplanes. They're still very mean to you. They still have the COVID angry service model instead of the joyful service model. But my point is, Drive to became obviously important. We did get closed. We did have emergency layoffs and we kept in touch with our team so we could bring them right back. We brought them, most of them back by the summer. And what we did was the biggest thing we realized as an entrepreneurial group is that the only thing the government was letting us do was outside. So with our resorts, and we have hundreds of acres, we ended up building a five-acre outdoor garden experience dining room. 
And it's out of a movie. You can look us up. You'll, you'll be like, holy smackarooski, that looks like something out of a romantic comedy. I mean, it's so pretty. Over there, you can imagine two people kissing, but then they have a fight, whatever. My point is, it's really beautiful. And we ended up being able to seat using all the government restrictions and still seat hundreds of people and still have them be compliant and still have them spend thousands of dollars a table on wine and food. And we started that in the summer last year. So it was kicking ASCII, as they say. It was really kicking butt. And the winter was coming. We had blown our pro forma for outdoor dining or any dining, like tripled it. We built our business models usually around weddings and rooms. And then, of course, food and beverage as an amenity. Well, um, food and beverage was doing you know, the most revenue because everybody needed an outdoor, beautiful outdoor space. Then we added entertainment. So we were now uh, becoming a real thriving, fun outdoor space. And then winter came. Now, we had always had a vision. Picture this, listeners, if you've ever been to the Bavaria area of Germany or seen it on a movie, they always had these winter festivals. There's like big fire pits and people are drinking hot wine and buying crafts and cool stuff. They call them winter villages in Europe. Well, we've been to a lot of those. We actually lived right next to one for years and it was magical. Temperatures could get to the 20s and people would still be outside having fun for three hours because they're drinking hot wine and eating food. So we built America's probably most robust outdoor winter village. We built that in November. We put in a professional NHL ice rink, got a Zamboni, had it professionally managed. And we were on every morning show you can think of. And we were in the Wall Street Journal. And we did over $2 million worth of winter business that was never in the pro forma. And now I think it became another specialty that we're adding to all our properties. I think it'll change the future of our business. So Corona helped us spike. At the same time, we bought a resort. While we were doing all that, we bought a second resort. And we got, as you want to ask me later, creative financing. We learned how to do that. We bought it and got started. And so Corona also, we sold a ton of weddings. Even though the weddings were paused, for some reason, the brine spree went on and we picked up millions of dollars of deposits and ended up Corona with an extremely large cash position and actually are current on all our distributions and dividends to investors because of that. So it was a turning point, but it was a turning point because we were more of an Airbnb company. We were never going to be a big box Marriott, which could never have pivoted like we pivoted because we were always experience-based. And just to finish up this experience-based culture, you know, our whole culture is based on a unique type of intimate caring for our guests, which we'll talk about some other time. But we're also really into what we call primordial experiences. And you know what the most unique, most achievable primordial experiences are? Nature, fire pits, water, agriculture, gardens, you know, the things that our bodies have always craved before we all lived in cities. And so that just spoke to everybody's heart and soul during the pandemic. So we crushed it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. 
Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I'm sure when the pandemic initially hit that your investors were probably a little bit on edge. It sounds like you guys were able to navigate and manage it okay. It sounds like you were probably raised some more money for buying more deals, etc. But I'm guessing at first, like everybody was, I'm sure they were a little bit on edge. So how did you manage the expectations and the emotions of your investors during that time? We're built in the modern era as a company. So we were never trying to go out and raise family office money, even though family offices do look at us. We like just talking to straight to families. So just like what's going on in your world, Robert, where you're one of the most successful podcasters in the world, because you speak directly and honestly to people. So that's how we run our business. We named it Accountable Equity for a reason. So we do transparent webinars. We do transparent phone calls. We do emails. And we were in touch with our investors probably throughout the entire switch of the economy and the shutdown temporary, and then the prolonged rules. So they were actually following the journey. And 
we always say, listen, we're going to do our best. Here's our best three things we can do based on prudence. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold on to things for a while. My point is we just told them what we were doing. Now, part of the reason that works well is because the investors we're attracting are real people. They're not hedge fund, as they say in the business. I don't want to be so polite, but that's probably the politest way. People that actually control money but don't know how to run a business, which is how most major real estate pieces are owned, could never do what we did. We just went right to our investors, treated them like great people like they are, showed infinite dignity and respect to them. And we just said, here's how we're going to navigate through this. And this is why you hired us to be your investment manager. And they were part of the ride. So it was a home run. And I think we grew from 120 investors to 220 investors during the pandemic because people like the way we treat people. In addition to being the successful real estate investor that you are, entrepreneur, hospitality, turnaround extravaganza, (laughs) you could say, you mentioned you host a podcast called Capital Hackers. We mentioned that I was on the podcast. Honestly, one of my favorite names for a podcast. Before I knew you even, I saw Capital Hackers and I was super intrigued by it. I, I really do truly love the name. As Josh mentioned before, he mentioned the episode number. I'll also put a link to the show that I was on below in the show notes if anybody's interested in going to check out Josh's show. But I'm curious, what have been the biggest things that you've learned? from being a host of a podcast. I think that's an indirect benefit that we get of being able to learn so much from these people. So what have you learned from your guests on your podcast? Well, to compliment you, and I have to, you're honestly a very good interviewer because you're a true student and you have a certain humility. Clearly, you're off the chart smart, but you never shy away from learning something new on each show. And so we do the same. Our show, If you, do you mind if I just modify the name you said? You said hackers. It's actually hacking, capital hacking an active strategy. And all it just means is that you already have the human capital you need to transform your wealth position. So we're going to show you that through different strategies and people. We've had people like Robert Kiyosaki, Hal Elrod, everybody you can think of on the show. So like you, we've attracted wonderful people. What we're learning is a couple things. And I would say the most salient single thing we've learned, if you don't mind, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Number one, is it seems like the capital code, like if you were in the matrix, that's why we use hackers a little bit like the matrix Neo, there actually is a pattern to the X's and O's. And the people we get to interview have seen through the code like Neo does and misses bullets and picks up on kicks and stuff. There's a bit of a code and it's actually not as complicated as Wharton or MIT say it is. It's pretty straightforward. That's why the people that own normal businesses are 10 times more likely to be wealthy than the people that are high-skilled, high-tech people because they just see the code of how money flows to the people for value. Anyway, so you can break that down in 100 ways. But the second most surprising thing I've learned, and I think I probably knew it, wanted to believe it, but I believe it's very true, is that wealth is, and this is a little scandalous, our premise, my premise, is wealth is not created in the public markets. Public markets means anything you can trade on your iPhone. Public markets are Sometimes used for some appreciation, sometimes used for day trading, sometimes used for technical analysis, sometimes used for wealth preservation. But I haven't met anybody that truly built their wealth in the public market. However, we're almost on 200 shows and I've I've met 200 people that have built their wealth on private investing. And what Wall Street is, is where private investing goes to cash out. (laughs) I hate to say it, but that's what an IPO is. That's where a whole bunch of people bought the business before it was worth anything, and now they're going to sell it for a billion dollars. 
But by the time they sell for a billion dollars, there's not much more wealth to be built. So we are major advocates of owning private deals and owning private real estate is one of the easiest ways to build wealth because there's a leverage factor. We can teach that some other time. And honestly, I've met people from every walk of life. Usually they're business owners and usually they do blocking and tackling and become wealthy, financially independent. Nobody's worried about buying Lamborghinis or jets. They're worried about passively living with all their expenses covered so that they can be more passionate about what they were called to do in this life. As we get towards the end of the show, I want to jump into a segment that I call the action plan, where I like to ask the guests three questions or for three recommendations that can create an action plan for listeners of the show for when they're done this episode. So for the first question, what habit or principle do you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? Reading books. Reading books, using Audible. These shows, one of the best things about listening to your show, Robert, is there's probably a lot of great book recommendations. And I would encourage you like me, I do. Every time I hear one, I kind of grab my iPhone and write it down. I have a book of who recommended it and why. So I think number one is books. Did you tell me I have to come up with three? Nope, just one. One, reading books. I had a mentor once who said, books, think of it this way. Whoever took the time to write that book, say you respect them for their skill. They've poured everything they've got into that book. So you really get an entire relationship of a person. And these people are the ones that have broken through the capital hacking code. And now they're just going to share it with you in that book. So please let that impact you. That brings me perfectly to my second question in the action plan. And that is, what has been the most influential book in your life? It doesn't necessarily have to be your favorite, but what has had the most impact on you? You said one. So I'm going to have to start with the number one for me. It's an oldie but a goldie, 100 plus year old book called Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. If your ears have ever heard that name, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it sounded like chalk fingers on chalkboard, then you're like me. I always hated the name of that book. But it was written 100 years ago, and it's more like an academic PhD thesis on how the mind and personality works. And his whole story, and my wife is a terrible skeptic of books written with titles like that, and she says she fell in love with the book around chapter eight, when he says, if you think I was teaching you a bag of, quote, tricks on how to influence or persuade or trick people, actually, he said trick. If you think I'm teaching you a bag of tricks, you have misread the previous eight chapters. It is never to be like that. So if you want to deserve a leadership role with someone in front of you, you must seek to understand where they're at and what the need of the other. So his whole point is the only way to be in relationship with someone is to be humble enough to be open to their need and then to respond in kind with an offer. So it's a very much a listening-oriented ethos, and this is how we try to run our companies. And so I would say the How to Win Friends is probably one of the most recommended by billionaires book. And there's a reason for that, because it's extremely true. It's extremely true. When you read it, you'll be shocked, because it was written truthfully like a PhD dissertation. It is not a joke. This is a real great book. I completely agree with your wife on being skeptical of these books with these titles, that's one of them. There's another one called The 4-Hour Workweek. It's a great book, but I didn't read it for a very long time solely because of the title. There's another one from a guy named Ramit Sethi called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. There's all these books. So I completely agree with your wife that I've actually been hesitant to read some very good books 
solely because of the title, but that's a great book recommendation. And a fun little story is that Warren Buffett actually doesn't hang his degrees. He has a MBA, I believe, from Columbia Business School. And he doesn't even hang any of his degrees in his office. The only thing that he hangs is a certification from Dale Carnegie's course in his office. It's the only thing he has hung. So just a testimonial that you can't argue with for Dale Carnegie and all the things that he's done. Yeah. And since you did that, which by the way, you've taught me something. I'm going to write that down. I never knew that. Think of it this way. And if someday I have the privilege of writing this book, I'd love to either rewrite or tell the story of Dale Carnegie, but change the name. And here's the name that a modern reader would have understood it as. So it was written literally in 1920. So over 100 years ago, you and I can't put ourselves back 100 years ago and think about how this is the dawn. There really is no such thing as a self-help book. So that title worked for them at that time by an academic, right? But today, you know what I think he would have written the title to be with the exact same words throughout the whole book? He would have called it, How to Seek the Good of the Other and Lead by Service. So it would have written a whole different focus with the same words after the jacket, how to seek the good of the other and lead as service. My point is he is about persuasion and leading, but his whole point is you do not even worry about it if you're not seeking their good, which is truly beautiful, right? I mean, listen, nothing happens unless we persuade someone. And that's why we say sales are sacred. First of all, sales are sacred because everybody in the company is depending on Jimmy and Jenny to make that sale. And we count on you. We're counting on you. Your job feeds our maintenance team. So it's sacred. There's a family here. But there's a stale is the influence of showing the good for the other and how your product and service can enhance that. If it doesn't seek the good of the other, do not do it, right? But if it does, then it's your job to influence them, to let them see how it does. So, man, I'm so glad that Warren sees that too. I'm so glad. He has a deep emotional intelligence as well as intelligence. When this episode is over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next podcast queued up in their podcast player, what is one action they should take after listening to this episode that can help them improve their life, career, or business? We have a habit or principle that we already talked about that they can implement. We have a book that they can read. What's another actionable thing that they could do to improve their life, career, or business? Close your eyes for just a second and realize if you liked the movie Matrix, There is a code of X's and O's floating through the sky, and they're related to capital. And the key to it all is your human capital. It's already ready for you, but you do have to learn how to apply the X's and O's so that you can dodge the bullets and pick up the wins. But that's the number one thing I would help you realize is you already have tremendous power. You know how they always say no two people are the same, that we all have different talents and gifts? That's truly what I mean by capital syndication when I talk about our company. We capitalize on great people and people who want to invest in it. We don't see capital as the people who put the money in. We see the capital as the people that help us run these companies and envision a new future and envision a new way to love people and do that with profitability, of course. And then the people who have the cash get to join the human capital, financial and human capital coming together is transformative. And that's how the world of creating the good can be done. And guess what? Everybody listening to here now is like in the top one percentile because this is the cut type of show. Robert is leading the type of show in the Investor Podcast Network that will transform the world if you let it, because you have to realize you already have what I call human capital, human power. I really do appreciate all the kind words. 
Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables a bit and letting the guest ask me a question. So what question do you have for me, Josh? Well, I was going to ask you a question about when you design your own personal investing philosophy, how do you break it down? Do you have categories of what you'd like to own? Be very curious because you've spoken to some of the best guests in the world now that I even know Robert Cialdini. But in general, in investing, where are you designing? How are you designing your portfolio? I have to admit that it was quite a bit easier when I was a W-2 employee. And the reason for that was just because I had this really easy way to distinguish money. And so for me, anything that was W-2 went into the stock market. It was just super easy to have an automatic contribution through my 401k. So that all just went into my retirement accounts, my stocks. And then anything that I generated outside of my W-2, so side hustles, side businesses that I had, anything else, real estate, anything like that, would just be funneled into more real estate. And so that was really the only way I distinguished it. I didn't really care so much about percentages in terms of allocation and things like that. It was really just that clear split. It was easy to manage and it was simple. Now I don't have that luxury as much because I'm not a W-2 employee anymore. So it's a little bit harder in terms of how I split it. And so now if I have a dollar to invest, I think more along the lines of, do I want this dollar to go out and appreciate or do I want this dollar to go out and bring back more dollars that I can spend? And so the difference there is appreciation and cash flow. And so if I'm looking for more appreciation, I look to things like the stock market. I do have a holding in Bitcoin. I do a little bit of equity crowdfunding investing in some private companies. But if I'm looking for cash flow, that money all goes into real estate. And so right now, the majority of my personal focus on investing is cash flow. And so the majority of my money is going into real estate, but I still have all the money that I had from my W-2 job and saved in the stock market, in Bitcoin, in some private companies. And so that's kind of how I think about my portfolio allocation today. I've actually met a lot of people that say something similar, so very wise. By the way, the other great thing about the stock market is liquidity. So while you're working to buy the next resort, or in your case, any houses or commercial buildings, at least you have access to it. So those are some good pros and cons. And well said, well said. I appreciate it. Josh, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Where can the audience go to connect with you and find you on the internet? Yeah. I mean, look, hey, we've talked a lot about capital hacking because I think you guys will love it there. We have Robert on. We'll hopefully get him back on. He's great. His whole story is awesome. He talks about how he reverse engineered his dream life. And he, I think maybe we might have captured the best audio version of that on our show, telling Robert's story. The other thing is accountable equity. What an easy, clear mission. We are just here to be accountable with your equity, our equity, and the buildings and the properties we do. So Check us out. The book is there uh, right on the homepage, I believe. The Seven Reasons Hospitality is primed for post-COVID. In general, there's a lot of free content coming. We do courses. All things are free. I think you'll like it there. I'll be sure to put links to accountable equity, capital hacking, any other thing that Josh and I talked about throughout the episode. That'll all be in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for everything. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.